Welcome back to another episode. Today we're talking about Bitcoin in El Salvador, Rolling Stone's ability to be taken serious as a journalistic source of information after their whole ivermectin debacle, Peter Bogosian resigning from Portland State, and Australia taking another step toward the Orwellian world of 1984. I'm your host, Christian Ashleman, and this is Bed Letter. If you enjoy the show, the best way to show your support is by heading over to bedletter.substack.com and subscribing. You'll be kept up to date on all new episode releases, as well as columns that I write on a wide range of topics, from OnlyFans flip-flopping to the war ending in Afghanistan to the funny interactions the world has with me. It's all over there. The links to the Substack, the show notes, and everything else can be found in the description of this episode. So, let's start this off with Bitcoin. All right. So, uh, recently just barely came out. I think it was yesterday, September 7th. Um, I'm recording this on the 8th, Wednesday. Um, El Salvador adopted Bitcoin as its official national legal tender. Pretty big news in the whole Bitcoin cryptocurrency world. Uh, I first saw this in a tweet where some guy had walked into a McDonald's in El Salvador and he was betting when he walked in that he wouldn't be able to buy things with his Bitcoin. But sure enough, they gave him a receipt with a QR code and he bought a breakfast meal with some Bitcoin. He had a little picture. I'll include the, t- the, the tweet in the show notes, but he had a little picture of his of the receipt with the QR code and he had, uh, you know, there, you know, he had his McDonald's meal sitting in front of him. Um, I also saw a tweet of someone buying their coffee at Starbucks with Bitcoin as well. So uh, it was a good day to own both Starbucks stock and Bitcoin. (laughs) That was kind of fun to see, even though there was a bit of a a downward turn in the price of Bitcoin. This news is pretty wild, notably because it's not just that Bitcoin is being accepted there. I mean, Bitcoin's been accepted all over the world for at different places for for a while now. But it, so it's not that it's just being accepted there. It's it's being adopted as their national legal tender, right? So this this that's kind of why this is such big news and pretty wild. Um, according to CNN, El, El Salvador currently owns 550 bitcoins. Um, they I believe they started off by buying um, either I think it was 425 or 400 bitcoins, and then they bought more. Um, up to 550 recently. So they now have 550 Bitcoins, um, which is quite a substantial amount. Uh, last I checked, the price of Bitcoin was hovering somewhere around 47000 48000 um, There was a bit of a drop in the price, like I mentioned, uh, to Bitcoin on the day that this all started, which I'm sure completely scared the shit out of them. You know, they just bought 550 Bitcoins. There's nothing like buying 550 Bitcoins and instantly losing 10% of their value. Uh, I don't think that I don't think that that trend's really going to continue. If I had to, you know, posit a guess, I think that uh, Bitcoin kind of goes up and down pretty frequently, but overall it does trend upward um, on if you look at it on the big scale. And I think things like this will probably only help that. Uh, you know, governments and bigger systems buying bigger amounts of Bitcoin. Um they had one, there was a funny part in the CNN article that I was reading. 
they had this this part where they're talking about a baker who was telling CNN that dealing in Bitcoin is easy, right? Dealing it in Z, it's simple, right? Well, and then immediately in the next line down, they had this this tortilla maker on the street who said that she still prefers cash. And I believe that they can still use cash. Like the U.S. dollar is still used as legal tender over there as well. They're not just doing away with everything except for Bitcoin. And I do think as well that it's important to to note for those who are a little unfamiliar with, with how Bitcoin is used or stored um, – it's not like a banking app where you download it and have to go through like all these verifications and and providing all this different information and stuff, uh, and you can only you know transfer so much money at a time, and you can only make so many deposits a month. It's not like that at all. It's far more accessible. You can purchase you know a physical techie little USB looking doggle wallet thing, and you can store Bitcoin on that. You can store it online in places like Coinbase. There's also um, hard drive, you know, hard wallets that you can that you can purchase uh, or not even purchase, but download onto your computer or phone and store it there. There's a lot of different options with Bitcoin. And it's not like, you know, iCloud where, you know, your photos are on anything that's an Apple product within a five mile radius, right? Like, for example, I mean, if I took a shotgun to my computer's hard drive, I would lose my Bitcoin. Now, that doesn't mean that it, it can't be recovered. I do have, you know, there's methods that you can go about recovering your Bitcoin if you have the correct uh, passwords, the correct um, keywords and, and sequences and everything. But uh, the Bitcoin is stored wherever it is, right? So if you if you put your Bitcoin on a one of these small USB wallets, um, then it's stored there. That's where it's stored. That's why people get upset. You know, that's how people, you know, they go through storage units and, and find Bitcoin on their computers from years and years ago and end up being becoming millionaires because they had purchased Bitcoin on their computer hard drive, uh, you know, back when Bitcoin was pennies for the dollar. And so it's interesting because I think this makes it so, you know, shop owners can have just a QR code posted up on the side of their building, you know, like like in the example of the tortilla maker or the baker on the street in El Salvador. They can just post up a, a QR code and people can scan it and immediately send over Bitcoin without, you know, this huge hassle. Uh, to be honest, you know, it's probably it's probably a lot faster than being asked if you want to sign up for like the Walgreens customer program. And you have to like put in your phone number and the little pad and wait for their dumpster tier Walgreens system to like process your card and so on. Does that, does that ever, has anyone ever noticed that? I feel like, I mean, I love Walgreens. Walgreens is great, but I swear, I swear it always takes a small, like a small eternity to check out there. Even if I'm the only one in line, which is also very rare because every time I go to Walgreens and I'm in the store, Everyone always seems to decide that they're ready to check out right when I right when I'm ready to check out, but uh, that's neither here nor there. Walgreens is just doing its thing. System's always down. System's always having problems, you know. But with Bitcoin, you don't really got to worry about any of that stuff. Is kind of the point. It's it's fast. It's easy. It's stored on on tons of in tons of different ways. And so, um, in the article I read, one thing that was interesting was their statement on how poor communities will have better access to finances through Bitcoin than they normally would through banks. Since Bitcoin is stored digitally, 
which which kind of harkens back to my earlier point of how easy it is to store and use Bitcoin, right? Um, with banks, you actually have to, you know, withdraw the cash and get the actual the fiat, you know, the actual dollar bills and all that if you want to, if, if that's what you're going for, right? I mean, you can use your debit card and things like that. But even even using a debit card, you have to have that mail to you. I mean, I, I recently moved across the country and I remember I was talking to my my bank in in Utah where I was moving from and I was asking how you know they don't have the credit union I was banking with out there they don't have that credit union out here in the south in Georgia where I now live and um so I was asking the question of if I you know if there's a situation where I I lose my debit card right and I can't withdraw money I can't go to the bank to withdraw the money, am I just, you know, am I kind of just shit out of luck? Because I, I now can't, I don't have my debt, if I didn't have my debit card and there's no banks here, how do I access that money, right? And I guess you can go to, you know, a, a gas station ATM, pay the $8 fee or whatever and and get, you know, funds withdrawn that way. But um, it's definitely kind of, you have to jump through some hoops, right? You have to jump through a whole bunch of hoops. And so it's kind of, it's kind of interesting to see where with Bitcoin, it's it's stored. You have it. You can you can, all you need is the code, the QR code to to you know t- accept or send Bitcoin, and so it's definitely a lot easier. And so, kind of putting it through the lens of how poorer communities can have better access to the, their finances through Bitcoin is is very interesting. And I'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, but it also does beg the question, you know, if there's no cell service or Wi-Fi. In these poorer places, especially if there's no, you know, Wi-Fi and they don't, they can't afford the tech required to exchange Bitcoin. Um, how does that work? Does that is that even really a problem, or is that, you know, some of these are just small questions. Some of these are big questions. Some of these are small questions that probably need to be asked all the same. But they still have, you know, like I said, they still have the ability to use the, uh, you know, to use cash to use the U.S. dollar as well. So the the lady who likes taking cash for her tortillas, she she can definitely still use that. Although if they're only going with cash, I feel like they are going to be losing some percentage of their customer base that's now moving more towards Bitcoin. Now, there's definitely some, you know, volatility with Bitcoin, uh, which many lawmakers and government officials are concerned about in El Salvador, and, and rightfully so. I mean... We have to note that earlier this year, Bitcoin was at an all-time high of sixty-five thousand, roughly sixty-five thousand dollars in April, which is crazy. A ton. That's that's insane. And and then it it tanked. Like it totally tanked, right? And and now it's climbing. But so much of that roller coaster would be like I don't know. That would be pretty scary to base the government's legal tender off of. Uh, given the advent of oh I don't know, you know, the future, I would say it's not. A bad bet to make, to be honest. Um, but it's definitely, you know, you are accepting some some risk in in adopting Bitcoin as the the legal tender, just given the kind of the volatility of it sometimes. But who knows? You know, things go up and down, fluctuate all the time. I mean, we print U.S. dollars frequently enough, and not many people seem to throw a fit about that. I mean, people don't like it. But it still happens all the same, so who knows? It'll it'll definitely be an interesting story to follow as it develops and see how El Salvador handles that. Um, and just to kind of wrap up this story, our, our good old friend Edward Snowden did uh, put out a tweet 
kind of an interesting take. I, I thought it was pretty interesting. It was, he was also one of the first people I saw that was uh, writing about this and I that, that brought my attention to it, right? So um, he said in his tweet, he said, Today Bitcoin has formally recognized uh, today, Bitcoin was formally recognized as legal tender in its first country. Beyond the headlines, there is now pressure on competing nations to acquire Bitcoin, even if only as a reserve asset, as its design massively incentivizes early adoption. Latecomers may regret hesitating. Uh, the part to note, I think, in what he has to say is is the bit about pressure on competing nations to acquire Bitcoin. Uh, even if smaller nations don't want to implement it as their legal tender, I think there will be more Bitcoin usage just all around, given that you know places like El Salvador are adopting it. And with scarce ability to really predict the future, um, having some Bitcoin would sure as hell, sure as hell be a lot safer than not having any at all, I would think. So um, it's kind of interesting to think of how they're going to handle that, how they're going to deal with, you know, competing nations and 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 kind of the, the finite or, you know, how Bitcoin works and functions. So like I said, developing story, going to be really interesting to see how that goes. But let's jump into the next thing and if you haven't heard about this by now then you might be living under a rock because it seems to be all the craze all the raging craze right now is this ivermectin debacle <laughs> i love the word ivermectin it's so funny <laughs> but so basically what happened was um recently joe rogan did this episode he's talking to i don't even know who it was he was basically talking about how he got COVID, right? He tested positive for COVID and, and what, he do, what he was doing to sort of combat that. And he wasn't talking all about, you know, vaccines and all this and, 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 and all that. I mean, he's, he's said in the past that people should get vaccinated and, and, and whatnot. But he's, he's talking about what he's doing to combat COVID. You know, he's sick. He, he, and it's Joe Rogan. He's talking about supplements he takes all the time, right? That's what he does. And so he's talking about, you know, he's doing this and this and this and this. And he says in this list of stuff that he's doing, he's, he says he took ivermectin, right? Which obviously this exploded. This exploded into this massive thing that has borne a just avalanche of hilarious memes and just this huge news cycle of ivermectin, right? So basically what happened was Rolling Stone published an article saying that ivermectin patients are backing up hospitals and preventing gunshot victims from getting care. It turns out that the doctor they interviewed who said this, who you know basically gave them all this information on these gunshot victims being lined up and not being able to get care because of ivermectin overdoses, uh, the doctor that said that hadn't actually worked in the hospital for over two months and the hospital issued a statement saying everything was fine, all their patients were being treated for everything. You know, it wasn't it wasn't just a train of people all lined up with bleeding guts because they got they just got shot and they're not getting care like the original Rolling Stones headline indicated. I mean, it's kind of a ridiculous headline anyway, implying that there's like all these gunshot victims that are just in a line outside Oklahoma hospitals just just waiting, clenching their guts like, you know, I've been shot, but you're going to you're gonna you're gonna treat somebody who snorted horse paste, <laughs> like it's just silly. And so, I mean, even the picture that Rolling Stone used in their article was total bunk, right? Um, they had this picture that was pulled from a a COVID vaccine lineup outside a hospital in January of this year, right, 2021. So 
everyone is just in this picture, everyone's in line and they're all dressed in winter clothes, you know, coats and beanies and, and they've all got their face masks on and calmly, you know, they're just calmly standing around as if, you know, and it, it's funny because it, the picture makes no sense given the context of the article headline and what, uh, what they're saying in the headline, which clearly those people in that picture are not gunshot victims. I mean, maybe they just Googled people standing in line or something on, on some, on, on Getty images or something. But, uh, you know, it's also the middle of, you know, it's September, end of, end of August, September. It's, you know, kind of the end of summer. It's hot outside. And this picture just has all these people in winter clothes, beanies and scarves and all that. And so the picture is totally misleading. And it's, it's actually, like I said, the picture was for a, a line to get a, the COVID vaccine back in January. So, um, it's a misleading picture and it makes no sense given the headline, right? So Rolling Stone ended up just making an update to their article, which is hilarious because the update that they made completely negates the reporting all, all around, right? Like if the title is originally, you know, gunshot victims are being are being left without care, lined up, lined up outside the hospital, then it's it's really does it, it just goes against the entire content of the article um, and the headline and everything to to basically just post a little update. It should almost, from what I was seeing a lot on on Twitter and other places, was you know it, it's it's more it needs to be more of a redaction than it needs to be an update because it's just the 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 content of their article was just false. Like it was they were just reporting bunk, right? Um, and there's like little threads of maybe of truth in what they're reporting, right? They're about the danger of of taking ivermectin and yada yada yada, all this stuff. But the the overall part and piece of what they're what they're reporting on in this article is completely a lie. So they they put out the the new title. The new title is now "One Hospital Denies Oklahoma Doctor's Story of Ivermectin Overdoses Causing ER Delays for Gunshot Victims." And so the title has, you know, obviously since been changed. The picture's been changed. Now the picture is just a bunch of a uh, bunch of like cases of ivermectin pills out on a table. Um, the hospital did come out with its statement, like I said, to refute the uh, craziness, this all this craziness. And so what their statement was is a message from the administration of Northeastern Health System in Sequoia. Um, and their their statement was basically, although Dr. Jason McLea is not an employee of NHS Sequoia, he is affiliated with a medical staffing group that provides coverage for our emergency rooms. With that said, Dr. McLea has not worked at our Salisaw location in over two months. NHS Sequoia has not treated any patients due to complications related to ivermectin. This includes not treating any patients for ivermectin overdose. All patients who have visited our emergency room have received medical attention as appropriate. Our hospital has not had to turn away any patients seeking emergency care. We want to reassure our community that our staff is working hard to provide quality health care to all patients. We appreciate the opportunity to clarify this issue, and as always, we value the community's support. So, I mean, not even it's not even that they're they're saying you know we have had some ivermectin. They literally say, they literally say in their statement from the hospital that we have not treated any patients due to complications related to taking ivermectin. And then they even go a step further to clarify that 
that includes not treating any patients for overdoses. So it's actually just such a stretch. It's not even a stretch of the truth. It's an anti-truth. It's against. It's it's what what the Rolling Stone you know reported on was completely false. And so it's really strange that this big of a flub can get through, right? Like that's just what I found fascinating. You know, Rolling Stone is some big magazine masthead that that lots of people read and. The fact that this big of a flub could get through is mind-boggling. Like, almost every part of this story was just bullshit. I mean, geez, they could pay me, they could pay me half of what they pay Peter Wade, and I'll, I'll write bullshit that's just as fake, but at least it will be entertaining, right? <laughs> no, I just, it seems like some of the, it, it's some sort of smear against the fact that this massive, you know, icon, Joe Rogan, who's, who's been skeptical of vaccines before, as they make sure to tell everybody, um, used ivermectin right even though rogan has literally said as i said before he's literally said on his show for people to go get the vaccine but they don't say that part right the fact that he exhibited any amount of of skepticism is just damns him and so i don't know it's just hilarious it's complete sensationalism for the purpose of giving one side some you know pseudo ammunition to say, see, see, like, look, everyone who listens to Rogan is a mindless twit that does everything he says, see? It's like, even though, I mean, even that's completely so far from the truth, or, or even possible. Do you know how many people listen to Rogan? Millions. Millions of people. If everyone was boofing Iver, Ivervectin right now, that article, or the hospitals at least, would have been forced to say something. But they didn't, and... They said the opposite. They aren't treating anybody with those with those issues right now. And so, um, you know, now, of course, they have to come out and they have to denounce, you know, the ivermectin is, is not an appropriate cure for COVID. But that's kind of, I don't know, I feel like that's kind of a no-brainer for someone who has like a modicum of critical thinking ability. Um, not to say that Joe Rogan doesn't, but just to say that, like, you know, obviously it's not the cure-all. <laughs> I don't know that there is anything that is the cure-all, <laughs> just like how drinking bleach doesn't work. I mean, they say to, you, it's not something you necessarily have to say, but they have to say it now that the, the news cycle is, is where it's at. They have to say that given the news cycle, right? I mean, I bring this all up not because I think it's hilarious that people use ivermectin to treat COVID, although it is pretty funny, but I bring this up because I think it's an example of dangerous, awful, ideologically driven-based journalism. Um, built and written to push, you know, a certain point of view, even when the story itself is actually completely constructed under false pretenses. I mean, I myself was in an interaction on Twitter where someone had replied to me and basically said, who cares if the article is true or not, right? That doesn't change the fact that people are using ivermectin at record rates and doubting vaccine efficiency uh, or vaccine efficacy, I guess I should say. Um, which, of course, you know, that just illustrates the point further, doesn't it? I mean, that the truth doesn't matter, only the narrative, right? We have to fit the narrative. And and first of all, show me the stats of this mass usage of Iver, ivermectin, right? Second, how did banners and jerseys just become so important that we stopped caring about the facts and the truth and only care about, you know, the vibe or, or overall jab a report is portraying, right? It's such a dangerous game and claiming that truth and fact in reporting doesn't matter so long as the narrative or narrow point of view is pushed is absolutely ridiculous. I mean... 
there's a reason there was a massive outcry toward Rolling Stone after this came out, because it flies in the face of their journalistic obligation and ethic. Now, of course, every news station or source has leanings and bias and tendencies and all of that, of course. But the goal is to at least try to obtain the facts, the truth. And if we lose that, then we lose everything. And so, I don't know, it's, it's a pretty funny story. I'll, I'll include some of the links to all this stuff in the show notes, um, some of these tweets and some of this different, this, this, this different stuff. Um, but it's definitely worth looking at, especially given just how how crazy the Rolling Stone article is. Obviously, it's been updated and, and headlines changed and all that. It's, you're not going to be able to find the original. And maybe you can find, like, some screen cap. I should have screen capped it when I, when I first read it just of how because of how insane it was. But... Um, definitely worth looking at and being aware of, especially. So let's jump into the next piece of news. Um, what do we got here? Peter Bogosian resigns from teaching philosophy at Portland State University. This one's pretty fresh, right? So Peter Bogosian uh, did resign from his um, philosophy teaching position at Portland State University today. That was this morning um, that I read about this. Uh, and to be honest, I'm kind of surprised he's made it this long. <laughs> Um, for those who don't know, Peter is a professor in philosophy who's come under attack over the past decade for his outspoken ideas and willingness to converse with people that put forward different ideas than the ones currently pervading our culture, right? He's had guest lecturers come on, um, come into his classrooms talking about anything from you know, flat earth theories to global climate you know, skepticism and um, Occupy Wall Street advocates and all, all kinds of stuff, everything in between. Um, in his resignation letter, which is definitely a must-read, definitely a must-read, I will include a link to it in the show notes over on Substack. He says, uh, this is a quote, I invited those speakers not because I agreed with their worldviews, but primarily because I didn't. From those messy and difficult conversations, I've seen the best of what our students can achieve. Questioning beliefs while respecting believers, staying even-tempered in challenging circumstances, and even changing their minds. I really love that that part um, where he says, questioning beliefs while respecting believers. I think that's so important, respecting what people believe or, or, or separating out what people believe from the human being that they are, and respecting the human being but questioning why they believe what they are. Those two things get intertwined and mixed up all the time nowadays. Everybody can do that. I, even I've done that, and it's, it's, it's definitely a difficult line to walk, but I really love that quote. It's definitely my favorite one from his letter, and there's some really good ones in there. Um, but it's my favorite because it details so well the underlying purpose of why we go to school in the first place, right? Not to be indoctrinated, not to be told what to think, but rather to to learn how to start that thinking process in the first place, how to ask a question. Questions are always more important than answers, to be honest, in my opinion. And And so to kind of dive into about why he's leaving Portland State, right? Peter writes, brick by brick, the university has made this kind of intellectual exploration impossible. It has transformed a bastion of free inquiry into a social justice factory whose only inputs were race, gender, and victimhood, and whose only outputs were grievance and division. But that's not the only reason that Peter wants to leave. Peter's time at Portland State has been anything but a calm and safe environment. 
He details how his own university initiated a Title IX investigation into him after a student complained, and this investigation resulted in rumors being spread about him beating his wife and his children with no due process, no proof, no or, or adequate reasoning for that matter. And, and once the investigation was concluded, they found no evidence that he had violated the school's code in the first place and didn't and they didn't apologize or do anything to combat the horrible horrible rumors that people were starting to kind of take as fact on campus and across you know the twitter sphere and the internet and so um you know peter is he's a well-known guy for his uh for lots of things but one thing that he's well known for and he talks about this in in the piece that he wrote um in his resignation letter is these uh, f- for for his purposeful absurd papers that he's published? Like um, one of them is called "The Conceptual Penis as a Social Construct," wherein he <laughs> that title is so funny. The conceptual penis as a social construct, wherein you know he attempted to get a ridiculous this ridiculous incorrect yet peer reviewed paper published. In, in the cogent social sciences publication in order and he did this in order to pr- prove the ideological pursuits of these systems he got this published successfully right he did get this published and it kind of goes to show straight back to what we were talking about in rolling stone where it's like almost like it doesn't matter what the content is as long as it pushes that narrative right as long as it as long as it has that vibe right and so after that, Peter writes about how he saw carvings of swastikas on bathroom stalls with his name on them in the philosophy department and how those images also showed up on his office door on campus. And crazily enough, apparently the gremlins that would do this also sometimes left bags of poop on his door, literal like literal shit, which is incredible. I mean, <laughs> what is... <laughs> What is that moment like for the person gathering or shitting into the bag, right? Like, what? Do they, like, tape it to the door? Do they, like, leave it out where he would step on? Like, how do they eat? Why do... Oh, I don't, I don't even know. Like, do they eat... I just picture them, like, eating days of Taco Bell prior. Like, oh, man, this is for Peter, man. I'm going to... You know, I'm, I'm, I'm prepping this. Really going to get my guts ready for this gift I'm going to leave in the philosophy department. I mean, that seems like something you could seriously be suspended or, or at least put on academic probation for, doesn't it? Like, I just think of that meme, the, you know, the one with the... Uh, it's that curly-haired kid whose face is all red. And he has, like, veins bulging out of the side of his head. And he's, like, I don't know, he's sitting in some classroom. <laughs> and he's just angry, you know? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. The anger and hate you gotta feel in order to, like, shit into a bag and leave it for someone. I I've, I ain't never been there. Never have I been there. That's that's amazing, though. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe Maybe... Maybe uh, maybe they just use, like, their dog's poo or something, which I feel like that's a half measure, you know, to be honest. Like, if you're going to do it, well, I don't want to support this, but if you're going to do it, I mean, that's like, la- that's like being lazy. That's like lazy hatred. I'm just going to use my dog's poo. Like, <laughs> come on. <laughs> Where's the fun in that, you know? <laughs> I don't know. I just can't imagine. I can't believe that people would actually do that on a 
on an in, in an intellectual space, you know, like in at university. That just blows my mind for the very thing that universities are supposed to be doing, right? Like talking about different ideas and different theories and different all kinds of different things. And like because of that, that's why he gets bags of shit on his front door. You know, <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> Anyways, poor Peter. So Bogosian was definitely harassed, right? Like in one section, he writes in his in his resignation letter, he writes. Ideological intolerance continued to grow at Portland State. In March 2018, I, a tenured professor disrupted a public discussion I was holding with author Christina Hoff Sommers and evolutionary biologist Brett Weinstein and Heather Haying. In June 2018, someone triggered the fire alarm during my conversation with popular cultural critic Carl Benjamin. In October 2018, an activist pulled out the speaker wires to interrupt a panel with former Google engineer James Damore. The university did nothing to stop or address this behavior. No one was punished or disciplined. Which, that's also, again, mind-blowing. It's really disheartening hearing about stuff like this. It really is. I mean, university is, again, for discussion, the toying of ideas, the learning of many different points of view. Yet this is allowed to happen. Keyword here being allowed, allowed to happen, being, being you know, that, that is the most important thing here. Nothing, no one was punished or disciplined. Nothing was done about it. I mean, for heaven's sake, it's literally, I mean, it's literally a crime to pull the fire alarm in, in like when there's no fire and just, just for the sake of it. I mean, a kid, I remember in middle school, a kid did that once and he got suspended for like two weeks. Might have even been more. I can't remember. But I know it was like serious. Like he got suspended for multiple weeks. And that was just a small, like some small town middle school, not a college building with like thousands of workers and students and teachers all going about their business. And and also in like this this discussion, right, this in, in, in probably I imagine like a, a theater setting with lots of seats, lots of lots of onlookers and, and a big audience and, and all of this. But nothing was done. No one was punished or disciplined. I mean, I would—I bet you they didn't even look into who did it. It was probably orchestrated and planned that way. Maybe not by the higher-ups of the campus, but the campus will just go with that once it happens, right? So he's had enough, right? He's had enough of this. Understandably so. And to be honest, like I said, Sprays made it this long. But uh, with the advent of podcasting, audiobooks, social media, and everything else, he will probably be able to have a bigger impact and ask bigger questions now that he's off the campus. Which, if that doesn't blow your head off all over the back wall, I don't, I don't know what will. I mean, that's where we are. That's where we are. People are so averse to hearing different points of view that professors like Peter Bogosian will find greater success in reaching younger generations through the use of a podcast or audiobook or YouTube channel. You know what? That's that's. There's a chance they'll even make... There's a chance they'll even make more money or even be able to get more funding now that he's out of there as well, right? I mean, people make bank on Patreon, Substack, and, and YouTube with YouTube ad revenue and sponsorships and stuff like that. That's, that's where we're at. That's where we are, folks. I mean, I love, I love these platforms. I love these platforms, you know, podcasting and video and audio. I think they're great. I love them. But this... This should scare us about what's happening at the university level. This should scare us. 
the fact that a professor is going to probably find more success using these types of platforms, using the platform I am I'm using right now, just talking into a microphone, than he would at a university with surrounded by supposedly great other great minds to help, you know, critique and talk about his ideas and their ideas. It's 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 that's where we're at. That's where we're at. That's crazy. So I'll close this story up with this final quote from his resignation letter. This isn't about me. This is about the kind of institutions we want and the values we choose. Every idea has advan- every idea that has advanced human freedom has always and without fail been initially condemned. As individuals, we often seem incapable of remembering this lesson, but that is exactly what our institutions are for, to remind us that the freedom to question is our fundamental right. Educational institutions should remind us that that right is also our duty. I love that quote. So on point. So on point. So there you have it. Like I said, this is a must-read. His resignation letter is definitely a must-read. A link to that will be in the show notes on Substack. And this was actually, Barry Weiss actually published his resignation letter on her Substack. So the link will kind of take you over to Barry's um, Substack there. So be sure to definitely you know check that out because it's, de- it's 100% worth a read. It's very interesting. Um, all right, so the last little piece of uh, you know news that I want to talk about is something that I've already written on my my own Substack a bit about um, on, on the newsletter. It's uh, it's Australia's new app, right? This new Orwellian app that's that's been uh, being tested in Australia. So Australia is in the middle of kind of pilot testing a new application that is just about as Orwellian as it gets. Um, there's really been no shortage of 1984 comparisons on this story. And as I've seen from some, um, the point of view that, you know, this comparison is way over the top, but I don't really think it is. And if you've read my column on my Substack about this new app, you'll kind of know why. If you haven't, definitely go check it out. It's not that long for those of you who just despise reading words on a page. It's pretty short and fairly informative. Lots of different links and, and sources to kind of run off to and check out as well. Um, but it's not that far from a 1984 comparison. I don't think it is. It seems like people think the world of 1984, as described by Orwell in the book, just like popped into being, right? Like it was always that way or something. Um, now, he doesn't give... In 1984, Orwell doesn't really give a full history of how their society came into being, but those types of sanctions and imprisonments don't just pop up. I mean, they slowly get implemented, right? Decade after decade, year after year, under the guise of safety, under the guise of, you know, what's best for the people, what's safe for the people, right? Um, And so if you haven't heard of this story yet, you might be wondering what the deal with this app is anyways, right? So basically how it works when you return to South Australia, you're required to download the app to your phone. Right now, it's actually voluntary because they are testing it, right? It's in the testing phases. But upon, you know, if, if it's implemented, it will be required. The app uses geolocation and facial recognition to track you once you've downloaded it with the purpose of making sure you remain in quarantine. 
At random intervals, you'll be contacted and asked to provide verification of your identity and your status within the quarantine, right? So you'll have, you'll have to take a picture of yourself and, and reply within 15 minutes to basically prove that you are still in quarantine where you say you are. If you don't do this within that 15-minute window, the police or some other health officials will be sent to your location. Uh, just a few quotes from very short quotes from the premier of South Australia. His name is Stephen Marshall. He says, we don't tell them how often or when on a random basis they have to reply within 15 minutes. Uh, and another quote he says is, we just use it to verify that people are where they say they are going to be during the home-based quarantine. Uh, later, he goes on to talk about how proud Australians should be to have the chance to pilot and test this program. I love that, right? Love that part when the leader tells you what to be proud of. Just just massive, massive, huge red, you know, waving red flags all over the place, all over the place in here. You know, you should be proud. You should be proud to be piloting this this big brother, you know, big brother spy program. <laughs> I don't know. It's, so, you know, it's important to note that the people have apparently chosen this method of tracking. But if I leave it right, you know, I leave it right there. If I stop right there, it might seem like they had a whole lot of other choices, which they did not have a whole lot of other choices. In Australia, 14-day quarantines are mandatory. So the alternative is this method of home quarantine, or I guess the alternative to this method of home quarantine quarantine is to be locked in a hotel room for 14 days in what they call hotel quarantine. It gets a little crazier in the Northern Territory in Australia where they have they have this it's what looks like this internment camp filled with a whole bunch of like copy and pasted buildings for the mandatory quarantine area. And that place is called Howard Springs. I've included a picture of it in the column that I wrote on Substack on, on this whole mess. Um, but definitely give it a Google. Like check it out, or at least go check out that picture on the on the Substack. It's really interesting to see the lengths that this place is going to in order to have that you know that no COVID protocol be like a reality. It's it's kind of scary looking at this at this place, right? And you know it's it's all under these these pretenses of safety and all that, but it's like it totally just looks like a camp, like an internment camp or something. And so really the juicy part of this is that in order to do the hotel quarantine or to stay at Howard Springs, that quarantine facility, it costs $2,500 per person or $5,000 per family just for that 14-day period, right? And these are mandatory quarantines, remember. So it's not as if you have a choice to pay that or not if you're coming back to the territory, which leads me back to the point of the people choosing this you know, big brother application. It's 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 with the app at home with no cost, or you pay the twenty five hundred bucks and and be locked in some hotel room or some camp for fourteen days. I mean, which lesser evil do you think people are going to pick? I can be at home for free and just use some stupid app and deal with this stupid thing for fourteen stupid days, or I can be locked up for you know for two weeks at some facility or at some hotel, you know, with a whole bunch of copy and pasted rooms, either in a hotel or copy and pasted, you know, buildings at this, at this camp at Howard Springs. And I can, you know, be $2,500 poorer because of it. 
or $5,000 poor if it's a family, you know, which, which one do you think people are going to choose? Of course, they don't want to deal with the, with losing their money. Of course, they don't want to deal with lo- having to lose their time. I mean, at least when you're at home, if, if, if you're working remote, you can still work. You can still do things. You can be with your family. You can, you know, read and, and do play games and, you know, do whatever at home. But so it, it's kind of like which it, it's almost a forced decision, to be honest. I mean, the government wants so badly to not end up like New York back in the early days of COVID or Italy or anywhere else that sustained, ma- you know, pretty massive loss of life from COVID. And that's understandable. I get that. I totally get that. But at what point does all this become just ridiculous and too much? As uh, as Connor Friedersdorf asks in a recent column that he wrote in The Atlantic, how long can a democracy maintain emergency restrictions and still call itself a free country? It's definitely an interesting article that he wrote, by the way, as well. So I'll definitely include that in the show notes, too. Um, but I feel like the you know the government in Australia is kind of falling into this binary problem, where there really is only this choice or that one, you know, black or white, in or out thinking. This type of ruling completely displays their distrust in their own citizens. Sure, you know, some people will be dumb. Like the one dude in that recent news piece that, you know, in Australia he had COVID and he was seen getting on an elevator and going about his day as, you know, as normal. And uh, he like sneezed. I guess he was by himself in the elevator and he sneezed. And um, there's like, this is all on video. And and that guy actually has a warrant out for his arrest now because of that, which is kind of insane on a whole different level. But yeah, some, some people will suck. You know, like They will not listen and they'll be stupid. And there might be some loss of life because of that stupidity. But I feel like it's better for one guilty man to go free than to lock up a hundred innocents, right? And when we, I mean, when we legislate and rule in the name of safety, it's an incredibly slippery slope. Last night I was watching this new documentary on Netflix called, uh, it's called Turning Point. It's this five-episode show about 9-11, and so far it's pretty damn good. I would definitely recommend it so far. But it, it goes into this into detail about how the fear of terrorism post-9-11 charged the Bush administration with this desire to to start, you know, Operation Stellar Wind, right? The, the, the operation, the thing where the NSA was basically collecting all of our emails and and phone data, right, illegally. And there's one line where where one of the Justice Department guys is supposed to sign off on Stellar Wind with the NSA, right? And he's he's got to sign off on it to renew its operation for another few months because they had to review it every few months to make sure it was it was still legal, which it never really was. But and he never felt like it was. But this time it was like, no, I I, I don't. He he was he talks about in the in the documentary. He's like, I he does he doesn't feel comfortable doing that. And he he expresses this to his advisor at the uh, Department of Justice. And his advisor says, okay, well, I hope you're happy when you have the blood of 5,000 dead Americans on your hands from the next terrorist attack. And it's that exact kind of belief, that exact kind of rhetoric that spawns these, you know, invasive Orwellian uh, big brother privacy invading things, right? Things in the world aren't black and white. They don't exist on a, you know, solely binary scale. And if we want to appro- we want, you know, if we want appropriate solutions that address the problem while maintaining our rights, 
then we have to be willing to entertain many different ideas for possible solutions. It seems like our culture is is obsessed with inclusivity and diversity and everything except ideas. And that needs to be fundamentally changed or we risk not we risk losing our ability to be a free thinking people. And that is one of the most important factors of what makes a human being a human being. It's one of, you know, it's why people fight in wars, why they die in wars. It's why uh, there's there's so much behind that. And that's why it's so important. But I think that's going to do it for, for you know, this kind of news news bit. Uh, if you have a favorite story or thought about this week's news, even, even things outside of what we talked about today, uh, you can definitely share that with me either in the comments on Substack or over on my Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Ashleman at C-A-S-H-L-I-M-A-N. Um, as I poured through much of the news this week, it kind of seemed like a big theme was what we are willing to do and say in order to defend or destroy truth, knowledge, and the pursuit of those two things. And so I'd really love to know what your takeaways were. Remember that the best way to support the show is by heading over to benletter.substack.com and subscribing. I've been a lot more active on Twitter lately, so, which, you know, for good or for ill, but sort of, you know, kind of finding my groove over there. So be sure to follow me over there as well. The links to everything, all the articles we talked about, everything in between uh, can be found in, and, and the links to the show notes can be found in the description of this episode. I really hope you guys have an awesome week. I'm Christian, this is Bed Letter, and I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.